Welcome to A24 on the Rocks. Tonight we will be reviewing De Palma, the 2015 documentary about a wonderful director that uh, has many films that I was not aware of that I am a big fan of. My name is Cole Willie Whitlock Gibson. Tonight I'm drinking Blackened straight whiskey. It is delicious. They play heavy metal music to it, and it is uh, truly a delight. Up next, we got my boy Kevin. Good evening, world. My name is Kevin K. Konkonacek, and tonight I am drinking a Bruv, which is a Berliner-style ale with black currant from Venture Brewing here in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. It's a, a nano brew, so about the smallest you possibly can get, and still making production, and it's uh, phenomenal. So, next we have... My name's Eric Kiska, and I am drinking a Two-Hearted Ale from Bell's Brewery. And up next, we have Kelly, my wife. Hey, it's his wife. This is Kelly. <laughs> um, I'm drinking Applejack Brandy, just straight on the rocks tonight. It seemed like uh, just something a little bit smoky, a little bit sweet. You might remember it from when we made cocktails with our friend, uh, the martini shot for the men cocktail that I had created. It's also very just tasty on the rocks itself. And we have a special guest tonight as well. My name's Ray Neiman. Uh, I'm drinking a Shorts Brew. It's actually a mule beer, ginger flavored beer. Uh, and I enjoy it, I'm a fan. Well, thank you for joining us, Ray. Ray oh, is our, uh, yeah, our local world-renowned De Palma expert. He has uh, <laughs> yes. tirelessly went through and watched all of his filmography, and I am ecstatic to have him on the show tonight. My first question I want to throw out to everybody is, what is your first De Palma film, and, and uh, you know, what is your experience with him? And we're going to start with our esteemed guest, Ray. So... I'm going to answer this question. I know it's a, a one-part question, but I'm going to give you three parts because I I vaguely remember seeing Carrie, but I saw it on regular television. It was edited, so I'm not going to count that. That's not proper De Palma. My second foray into possible De, De Palma was um, back in the day, and, and this is going back, there was something called On TV. On TV was a subscription television even before HBO. Mm -hmm. And at 8 o'clock at night on the local Channel 20 station, it went to pay-per-view, and they showed first-run movies. And I remember Dress to Kill being on at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. And, and I told my parents, hey, this is something we need to watch. It's a thriller. So I'm like 10 years old talking my parents into letting me watch Dress to Kill. So the movie starts, and the camera slowly pans in on a nude Angie Dickinson. And I'm sweating, and I'm realizing... I don't have very long to watch this movie. And then we get a close-up of Angie Dickinson washing her breasts, and I'm like, if this doesn't cut away anytime soon, this show's going off. <laughs> uh, the next cut is full frontal. My mom launches herself off the couch. This is before uh, remote controls, and that TV went off, and my dad looks at me and he says, a thriller. So I saw like three minutes of Dress to Kill, so that didn't count. But then we'll fast forward to 1983. Uh, I'm 13 years old, and <laughs> you know, you thought my parents would have learned from Dress to Kill, but they took me to see Scarface at the show. 
So that was awesome. I came back to school the next day. I think I was in eighth grade at the time. And man, I just was going off about this great movie called Scarface, talking about the chainsaw scene in the bathroom, the end, the, the bullet ballet at the end. And it was, yeah, that was my first experience in Brian De Palma. And ever since then, I've been hooked. Mm-hmm. Very good. What about you, Eric? Um, my first uh, experience was Scarface 2, but in a different setting. Uh, I was playing Grand Theft Auto a lot um, when I was 12 or so. And, you know, Grand Theft Auto is very much referenced with uh, Scarface. And saw the movie right after that. And I actually think I also might have seen part of it on TV, but very edited. So I'm not even going to count that because you can't you can't count that with Scarface. And so then I watched the whole movie around uh, Grand Theft Auto time. And from there on, I knew who Brian De Palma was. And I knew what Say Hello to My Little Friend was. <laughs> what about you, Kelly? So I am newly a movie fan in like the kind of way that we're really dissecting it on this podcast. And by that, I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell you what director did anything until about the last five years of my life since I met Eric and I started caring about what really goes into a movie more than just who's the big name actor in it. So the only De Palma movie that I have seen is Carrie. And I'm going to be probably an interesting perspective on (laughs) watching this documentary with only one frame of reference as a movie that he has ever done. But lots to learn from me. Carrie, I thought was a great movie. And yeah. Kevin? So... For me, the very first De Palma movie that I ever watched would have been Mission Impossible. Um, There's an interesting story behind that. Growing up, my mom wasn't a big fan of movies that were, uh, let's say, bad, we'll call them, or influential. Uh, So I wasn't allowed to watch even something as simple as uh, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. So it was on the list of movies that I would try to watch when I went to my dad's house for the summer. Because he would, you know, be the cool dad and let you watch things that you could not necessarily watch when you're around mother. So Mission Impossible is the first one. um, And obviously not knowing anything about the director, it was a phenomenal movie for a young kid to watch. Um, I then went on to see uh, Scarface, um, The Untouchables, which was one of my favorite movies. And uh, those kind of being the three big ones that I have experience with. Um, After watching this documentary, I can't wait to go back and check out a whole bunch of his um, backlog. But even with those three big ones being um, ones that I have watched and enjoyed, it kind of gave me a a whole lot of... um, kind of more respect for him as we kind of went through this documentary, but that was kind of my experience going into it. Nice. Uh, to round it out, my uh, my first De Palma film was Carrie as well, and I'm going to you know, maybe out myself a little bit. I've never seen Scarface. Uh, it's been a film that I have greatly wanted to watch, but I've just, just never actually taken the time and sat down to, to boot it up and watch the whole thing. Uh, I've seen a lot of the clips, but never actually watched it. But Carrie was my first experience. I really liked that movie. Um, you know, I saw it because of I, I was really big into Stephen King and wanted to basically watch all of his adapted films. So I went through them, and Carrie was one of them, and watched it. And definitely one of the best, if not the best, probably the best in my opinion of the adaptations of Carrie that was done. Um, and then like like Kevin, Untouchables is uh, one of my favorite films. I really, really enjoyed that movie. Um, definitely like the old school gangster and some Al Capone action. So 
that was definitely my experience. Uh, now, moving into the documentary side of things, with the way that this was filmed and kind of set up, I have, I, I kind of want to see, uh, like, Kelly, what your opinion was on, I guess, the structure or how they kind of framed this documentary or what your your vibes were on that. Yeah, I was talking to Eric. I was saying, who hosts this again? And he reminded me who. And I said, well, good luck. This will be a discussion that we'll have about one side of a discussion being had. And that's how I feel like this documentary was kind of set up. Is It's framed in a way like you yourself are asking the questions of this director. And then we go in a chronological kind of just history through things clipping in every kind of reference that's being discussed. So extremely straightforward and stripped down. And I think that that would be the way to go about it because you want the clips of the movie being seen to be that contrast between the two. So that was kind of my impression is it also uh, just kind of drops you in hot and heavy, almost like conversations already been going on for a minute. So for me being quite lost and not having really any background on this man i was like okay i'm gonna get my bearings and it probably took me about 10 minutes until i finally did yeah no i um <clears throat> i definitely understand that feeling i that's why i called on you because i wanted to confirm my thoughts and feelings and make sure that no one else had a voice on this podcast and it was just the two of us <laughs> moving on um, <laughs> yeah moving on no i definitely it. uh it definitely gave me almost i felt like i was at like a lecture like i was in college and i was taking a film class that was about his body of work which obviously it's a documentary and it explores that but it just felt very like he was the professor and he's just sitting up there and he's just telling you about his process and stuff, which not a good, not, not a, you know, not a negative, but definitely my, my feels thoughts on it. What about you, Ray? What's your thoughts on uh, just in general documentaries and, and how this one was filmed and, you know, you being the De Palma guy, do you think it did him justice? So uh, documentaries are generally speaking hit or miss. And I think like anything else, it, it's the subject matter. If, if it's something I'm interested in, I'm more than happy to sit down. I, I like to say that uh, I want to be enlightened and watch, you know, most documentaries to learn things. But there, I mean, honestly, there's only so much time in the day. And if it's not a subject I'm interested in, I'm going to pass. That being said, uh, the subject of Brian De Palma interests me immensely. For me, I think to myself, let's say, you know, I'm just sitting at the bar and I, and I look over and there's Brian De Palma sitting at the end of the bar. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I, I'm going to just buy this guy a beer and see if I'll open up and I can ask him some questions about his movies. And now I feel like I don't need to do that because, you know, the De Palma documentary, he is very candid and he talks about all of his films. So you're getting it right from the horse's mouth. It's it's like um, not just his greatest hits, but his uh, all of uh, everything is in, in his entire catalog and, and he's supplying the liner notes for it. So I'm thrilled with the fact that there's this is a recorded history of him talking about his films and the ups and downs of each one. What about uh, what about you, Eric? What's your what were your initial thoughts or kind of the, the structure of this documentary? So this is uh, the first documentary I watched after I watched the nine part Civil War documentary by Ken Burns. <laughs> which is a very long and methodical documentary uh, that is very slowly edited and slowly paced, and it kind of tries, tries to pride itself on being impartial and an impartial eye to the whole war. And so now I go into this documentary very fast-cut, fast-edited, fast-paced, 
and it is one guy with pretty much one camera shot on him the whole time. Maybe it zooms in a bit more on him sometimes, zooms out. Um, but it's him talking about his whole life, how he made movies, but also slowly touching on, uh, not slowly, but quickly touching on some of the parts of his personal life. The viewer probably can form an opinion, you know, if you wanted to go into this movie just learning, you know, learning about how he made films, you know, he does a great job of talking about that. But then I was more interested in some of the parts uh, where he said, like, he wanted to murder his dad um, after finding out that uh, he was cheating on his mom. And also he just kind of quickly glances over some of, hey, yeah, my marriage didn't work out. Some of those parts I felt I wanted a second opinion on or and or maybe more of an impartial view on his life. And so I have a, I have mixed feelings about this. There, you know, like, I can appreciate it for what it is if you're a huge De Palma fan. You know, this is, like uh, Ray was saying, inside baseball on how he made all of his movies. But then at the same time, it's like I'm not getting a full view of his life, in my opinion. I think there might be more impartial opinions on uh, his filmmaking plus his personal life that I might have wanted to hear with the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, that's definitely something that I, I was thinking about, too, and just the way they structured it. You know, with the it, it's like an autobiography almost mm-hmm. where he's just telling you about his 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 experience in his life and how he does it. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed his inside baseball and the film stuff. Uh, but I, I thought that was a very good point you brought up about how there's really no one else like no one else provides any other perspective, uh, which is contrary to the other documentary that we watched, uh, Amy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin, I know I know you were a very big fan of, of, you know, that documentary. How do you think, you know, the, the kind of the dichotomy between these two and how they stacked up? And, you know, what was your take on this one? Um, so I think that um, when we touched on this during the Amy documentary heavily, that Amy was, in my opinion, a, a rescue project on Amy's um, career, some of the opinions that people may had on her. Um, so it was framed in a certain way to kind of pull some of the positive feelings about Amy Winehouse out while still giving a good look at her life in general. Um, and it is obviously done posthumously, so there's a whole bunch of difference putting into doing a documentary about someone who's deceased versus you know doing something that's live and then this documentary for me was and not to say that they're not comparable because they're both documentaries but they're totally on different planes for me to the point where this does feel like an absolute vanity project and a passing project for our director and not in a bad way but in a uh, this is a if I'm going to share my story I'm going to do it my way because I'm giving you permission to do it. And this is the only way that it's going to get out. So you might as well let me sit here talking to the camera and give you everything I have. And we'll edit it to make it look not put me in a favorable light, but like Eric said, glance over some of the more, you know, unsavory details while allowing the viewer uh, to kind of take in uh, his entire body of work in a digestible amount of time. Um, you only have two hours and you have a whole lot of, of, of work to go over. And for a very influential guy in a very, very influential, poignant part in Hollywood history, it could keep going like we've already alluded to. There's probably a whole lot more. And for a viewer like myself who's not part of the movie-going society in general, I'm not a big cinephile, or at least I wasn't until I started this entire program with all of you guys. But now I found myself just 
waiting for the next movie for him. I loved the inside part of it to be able to kind of see behind the the, the veil a little bit and kind of get in an entire undigested version of it from his own voice. It was it was great. It was awesome. I loved listening to it, and it moved quickly uh, because it was all brand new information to me, and that was really a cool part of it. So, the long and short of it. Go ahead. Man. Well, the Winehouse documentary is almost a cautionary tale of success and fame and uh, the downfall most notably caused by drugs and alcohol and Mm -hmm. you are incorporating images of her and and um performances uh you're talking about people who knew amy winehouse and her self-destructive personality along with her immense talent and the de palma documentary is almost um you know, he's sitting in front of a camera based on a tripod with a medium shot of him sitting in front of a fireplace. And he's just talking mm-hmm. casually about his career and uh, the work he's accomplished and the ups and downs and the rise and falls and his disappointments mm-hmm. and his successes. So I think one is more matter of fact, I, I keep using yeah. the word conversation, but it's conversational. And the Amy Winehouse isn't a documentary she necessarily participated in. It was a documentary that was crafted after her, um, you know, sad demise. Yeah, no, I, that's a, uh, yeah, very, very well, well put. And, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing that I did enjoy a lot, um, kind of, <clears throat> again, I didn't know much about him. Uh, I, I knew, you know, some of his films and, and stuff like that, but I really liked the way kind of that he holds himself as a director where he's you know he's very proud of of what he's accomplished and he's very like matter of fact about how he operates and the way he he does his films and how people should feel and how things are done and you know he's i mean he's he's a master at his class or his craft right and and he has a reason to be like that and at times it almost came off like he was you know just very arrogant but at the same time i realized what he's accomplished and things that he's done and it gives him that, you know, arrogance of this is how you're supposed to film, you know, Carrie. Like Carrie is supposed to be this way. Mm-hmm. All these other versions of Carrie miss the mark. <laughs> like I did not miss the mark. And and to be fair, I agree with him. And and I, you know, I, I, I liked how his like how just direct and his candor about the about his his craft. So I, I agree. One thing I did want to talk about that I never really i guess put a lot of thought in but he brought it up and it makes a lot of sense and i kind of want to get get everyone's opinion about it i'm going to start with you eric uh because i think i know what ray's opinion is but (laughs) i want to start with you uh where he kind of talks about how there's been a you know a systematic change in hollywood right like before films were made to be films they're made to be art they're made to you know tell a story and represent something and now hollywood is has transitioned like he you know he was a part of the the old the old uh group and this new group is all business it's all about money it's all about the marvel films how much cgi can we put in stuff right and he he's not about that and he talks about kind of that change and how you know kind of alluded to film has lost some of that it's i guess soul in a way so i, I want to hear what your opinions are on that here i will uh respectfully disagree with mr de palma um i do think that uh in general, mainstream film has gotten more capitalistic like that, like with films, all the Marvel films and everything. Uh, I mean, that aspect was always kind of there, but like in the 70s, 
I think we did, we were in a, I mean, it's known as a golden era of film where there were a lot of uh, experiments and risks taken in film. But I think if you kind of go throughout film history since then, you can find a lot of very good indie films that were made just for, for art's sake. You know, it's the art for commercial sake versus art for art's sake. And I definitely think that there's a lot of indie films I've found from 80s, 90s on uh, up to now, the last 10 years, where we get A24 releasing a lot of these indie films that I really love. And uh, I would say A24 is a good example of a distribution studio distributing things uh, more for art's sake because they specialize in just releasing low-budget films, mostly. Low-budget, considering with inflation nowadays, but yeah. (laughs) So I I will respectfully disagree with him on that point, that film isn't really made as much for art's sake anymore. I do agree that he was in a golden era of film, though, and yeah, in the 70s, they took uh, risks and experiments on film that weren't really done as much, you know, in the 50s and before then. What about, uh, what's your take on that, Ray? I think it's interesting that what he can, his earlier films, and uh, they're considered extremely controversial, uh, wouldn't even register a blip on the radar now. I I admire the fact that uh, he made the films he wanted to make. And and at a time in the 70s, he was able to do that because he was considered an artist and an auteur. And I think just looking at what he's accomplished and just looking at his visual style and I I think to his uh, artistry of of camera, it, it almost supersedes the plot to a point where at times it's a detriment to the film because he... I think is a very bright man and I think he likes using a moving camera and I think he likes to tell a story visually and that Mm -hmm. always plays. I I think (laughs) it probably disappoints him now that most everything is done digitally. I can't speak to that because I I don't know for sure, but uh, he's a craftsman and he's, he was compared to Hitchcock and there's a reason for that. Um, His, his, uh, his fans will tell you it's because of his artistry and his critics will tell you because he tries to ape Hitchcock uh, to his detriment. But I mean, there's always room in Hollywood for artists to make good films and, and visually and, and a visually entertaining film. So yeah, could he, could he work now? I mean, a 24 would be perfect for him. Uh, they would cut him a budget and let him go on his way. And what, what was once deemed controversial again, uh, they wouldn't blink an eye because you know, I think they're about the artist. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it, man. I, I definitely, uh, definitely understand and And, you know, I, I definitely respect, respect his, uh, his craft. What about, uh, Kelly or Kevin, you guys have any, any thoughts or input on, uh, Kelly? Yeah. My thought with that is I was, he compares and references Hitchcock so much. And I think about what the industry was like during that time, I think about what it's like during the height of kind of De Palma's career while he's still in America. And then I think about it kind of now. And I think he mentioned um, that wave of all of those black and white movies coming out of France at the time. It's not Art Nouveau when it's film, right? But it's a similar French thing. Avant-garde. Yeah. Like all of these, uh, those kind of movies. And I watched a few of those when I was in college. And I can see that kind of influence being pulled in. I see his Hitchcock influence, obviously. Then they show us when he's in his group 
of fellow directors and you see George Lucas. And even me with my layman eyes, I know George Lucas when I see him. So I think then comparing De Palma and George Lucas, and they're talking about they shared casting kind of thing, like they would have shared notes, they were colleagues and everything. And you see the way that Lucas's career has gone versus De Palma's. And there's just clearly a very different philosophy behind the two of them. And I think that maybe that plays into that comment that he made. Um, But I also agree with what Eric said, that there's a lot of the pool of movies being made is even bigger now. And I feel like there's more up and coming directors with all kinds of creative designs because of Alfred Hitchcock inspired 10, then those 10 inspired 100, and it just goes on and on from there. So I think that the pool is even larger. And I think that everybody's right because the pool is so large. It's an infinity pool, if you will. <clears throat> ah. Or a gauntlet, some would say. <laughs> uh, one thing that uh, really surprised me and kind of uh, made me almost, like, I almost bought into the like the De Palma Kool-Aid with the uh, talking about the film and losing the soul and stuff was just when when he like showed like his group that he used to run with like the you know the, and it had George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese, him. I mean, we're talking about like some of the greatest like directors of all time, and they were just all killing it all at the same time. And I was trying to think if there's you know any any I guess like a group of you know directors or people that are you know i guess more of our time right now that i but i couldn't couldn't really think of any but you know listening to both eric i guess the kiskas talk about it you know it makes sense that there's not really a a small group because there are so many like film industry has blossomed into a billion trillion dollar industry so which opens the door to a lot more and it's not so much a, a closed niche group to where you know everyone can become more and more successful so I definitely, definitely see both sides of the, the coin on that one. One thing that uh, I guess I never quite realized until watching this film or watching the documentary about his style was, I wouldn't call it overuse, but definitely he used a lot of like female nudity uh, and combined it with like a lot of, um, you know, some very graphic scenes too. So, you know, the first thing that came into my mind was like the carry scene at the start with the shower and all that stuff and watching it i was like what you know that was something that i wasn't prepared to see in a film and then seeing it all of his other filmography or his everything else that he's done and just them kind of flashing it on the screen as you're listening to him talk uh i mean he definitely used it a lot but my question is uh i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to you ray first is do you think that his use he was it an overuse or do you think he used it like he alluded to where he was, you know, it kind of needed it to happen. Like you needed that to feel, feel a certain way in, in the way he framed the films and stuff. So it's funny you mentioned this because I was actually talking to a friend uh, a couple days ago and telling him I was going to be on a podcast about Brian De Palma. And uh, he used the phrase, that smut peddler. And I laughed and uh, I said, you don't believe that, do you? And he's like, no, not really. And But it's funny because he is considered very misogynistic. Uh, His treatment of women, body double, dressed to kill, uh, they're very graphic, very graphic deaths on screen. And he he talks about that in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I understand where he's coming from. Uh, uh, He makes his point very clear to me. I'm not a woman. 
uh, and so it strikes me differently but i could certainly see where it would offend people. Now, he's not making, you know, Red Shoes Diaries and Skinamax After Dark movies. I mean, there's a reason mm -hmm. uh, that he is at times gratuitous. I mean, you don't make a movie like Body Double about the porn industry and then, you know, skirt away from, you know, <laughs> pornography. I mean, he wanted to hire a, 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 an actual uh, adult film actress in the role. So I think that is is he gratuitous? No, uh, I wouldn't say so. I mean, uh, the opening scene to dress to kill. There's a reason for that scene. I mean, it it is is it is very racy for sure, but I think that's what he does. I mean, if she's fantasizing in the shower, you know, you're going to want to see that she's fantasizing in the shower. So he shows it, and it. It makes people uncomfortable. You know, the nudity at the beginning of Carrie, um, it shows Carrie's vulnerability. She's having her first menstrual cycle. Um, the girls are teasing her and throwing, you know, tampons at her. And she's in a shower, so she's going to be naked. She's going to be vulnerable. And then that's using that at the beginning of the film, it... It conveys a sense of you're already rooting for Carrie because she's being picked on. It's almost like an afternoon special or after school special with a, a girl, a revenge after school special with a girl that, uh, you know, gives her cup comeuppance to her um, her bullies by using telekinesis. Would I say he's gratuitous? I wouldn't. But I again, I see the argument for it. And I think like. For example, um, Body Double followed Scarface, and he talked about in Scarface how he turned three cuts into the MPAA because they kept giving him an X rating. And then finally, he's like, if I'm going to get the X rating, I'm going to go back to the original cut. And it got the R rating. So he definitely has a clear cut mindset where this is what he wants on screen, and there's a reason for it. And if you don't like it, I mean, you're seeing a movie about, a, you know, a, a Cuban gangster who's a cocaine dealer. So, I mean, you should know going in that, you know, it's an R-rated movie for a reason. The body double, I, I think, was just him putting like a giant foam middle finger on to the MPAA and said, this is what you're getting. You're going to get a woman killed by a giant drill. Uh, I'm going to set half of the movie in, in the porn industry and have at it. And it's funny because he talks about the tracking shot that he does in that movie. And I mean, there's some beautiful work in Body Double, technically, and nobody ever talks about it. It was considered a failure. And he does talk about uh, Melanie Griffin as, as Holly Body, how she blew up after that. And she deserved to because she's incredible in that movie. And, and I always think, too, when I think of uh, Melanie Griffith and Body Double, that's Tippi Hendren's daughter who is uh, worked with Hitchcock. So there's that little connection there as well, a little De Palma Hitchcock connection. And I don't know if he did that intentionally as a wink to his fans slash detractors, but it was a great hire because she's awesome in that movie. Eric? Yeah, I was just like a little fun bit of uh, movie history trivia. So in 1968, uh, there was something called the Hayes Code that was repealed and replaced with the MPAA film rating system. And the Hayes Code before that would not allow any nudity in main like films that were released in family theaters uh quote unquote family theaters like i believe you know in new york city in the 70 or the 60s you might have been able to go to an adult theater or something but there was something called the Hayes code that was repealed and replaced with the mbaa film rating system and that's when you really start started to see nudity in mainstream film and right after that, we had Midnight Cowboy, uh, which I believe won a Best Picture. 
which was the it was x-rated at the time and that was just like a huge thing uh groundbreaking thing for film and so the palma comes in right after that and i definitely think in the 70s we did we got a lot of uh nude nude and nudity scenes i think the palma mostly uses them in decent taste uh where he doesn't just throw it in there for no reason but at the same time like he says later in the film most of my movies are about megalomania and guys living in insulated universes and a lot of his films do have the male gaze and if you're viewing things through the male gaze you know we are going to see a lot of this gratuitous nudity because that it's these people really corrupting on their own power some of his films you know so like scarface i would say so yeah i i think that mostly uses it tastefully but also it was kind of a product of the time at that time after this film rating system came out and you were able to use nudity in films there was a lot of just nudity back then kevin so i'm gonna put my tinfoil hat on on this one um i think that brian de Palma learned very early on in his career that the things that he probably enjoyed putting into films also created controversy and then that controversy was going to be enough of an outlet to get him noticed. We talked about it, and he talks about it in the documentary, right, that Greetings, that early 1968 film with Robert De Niro about the draft board and the hippies dodging those things and how that initial criticism that got posted you know, online and just kind of that media started feeding some of his getting attention to some of those films. And if that's an early lesson as a film director, I think you probably tend to stick to those things as you're moving throughout your career. I mean, he is goes on to quote himself basically saying my movies tend to upset people a lot you're very well aware of that fact when you're writing these things it's not like you're trying to avoid it when you're putting it into your film and yeah there's probably a certain amount of well this is my art and my intention but it's also the way you've made success in the past and the way you're going to continue to kind of work your way up to that so you know i don't think it was gratuitous i think it was absolutely true to who he was right away from the beginning but i also think he used it as a as a specific method to continue to further some of those um movies forward and to continue to get success for himself and to everyone's point too uh just he actually says a quote here we're always being criticized by the fashion of the day and when the fashion changes everyone forgets uh, and that, I think, is a very interesting mm-hmm. quote to go with this point. Yeah, I thought, I thought, I mean, he, again, I I thought that was a, a very, very poignant quote and, and kind of elaborated on some of the culture changes and stuff that we, we all live through and see. Um, I think, I think he is like a master class at finding the line and then he crosses it and kind of like redraws it a little bit further and just to keep keep going to see how far he can go and really push some of those limits and walk that line uh, and Kevin you you brought up his you know some of his films that he made that uh, were very you know related to the war and, and the hippies and trying to you know he even talked about how you know that movie was basically about himself trying to get get out of being drafted and and he you know admitted completely about how you know if you were just a middle-aged or not a middle-aged a uh, middle-class white guy if you didn't want to go to war you didn't have to and you know he talked about he went through the whole steps and then he made a movie about it and uh, he made some other movies like casualty of war where you know he dove and he i think he made another one about um afghanistan and you know dove into some of those like the darker side like it you know you got a lot of these war films that kind of glorify war and he he took the opposite he 
you know, I mean, it's literally called the casualties of war and it does a deep dive into it and really, really goes in depth on some of those ideas. Kelly, going off the war track that I just talked about, do you think that, you know, the way that he portrayed it and also other directors that portray, you know, war and certain things, do you think those are like, you know, add value? Do you think they're, they're good depictions or what are your thoughts on some kind of like the almost like anti-war war movies? My thoughts on anti-war war movies. I think that <laughs> <laughs> it's a necessity. I mean, it's a, it's a, in its own way, it's a act of rebellion. I got the impression from De Palma that he was very like anti-establishment, very anti, maybe even mainstream, but clearly anti-war. This is his own way of telling the story, and to use Michael J. Fox as his name, correct. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future As boy. the lead for that movie is really amazing. I am shocked that I've never heard of that movie. From what I have seen during this documentary that we just watched, there's two movies of his, if I could tangent real quick, that I mm-hmm. have on my list immediately. And one is this war movie. It looks really amazing. And I appreciate how much time they spent talking about shooting on site, building your own jungle, because if you walk two minutes in the jungle, you'll be lost, basically. (laughs) We're just going to move the trees around, and the amount of heat, you need to feel it in order to really get into this kind of movie. Also, Blowout, I thought, seemed really amazing from the discussion had on this documentary about that movie as well. But I digress. Back to anti-war war movies... It seems like he put out what seemed what would be a really good film. Uh, to me, having not even lived through that time period, I think that he is voicing a generation. Um, I think that it's more how people talk about that time period now is like the more common kind of way that that movie depicted it. Like it was probably the minority opinion, possibly at the time. Feels like a brave story to put out there, and I, I don't know, I give it credence, but. It's one of those things where I haven't seen the movie, so that's my impression from what I got from him. Real quick, I 100% agree. If that movie was released in the 20th century, or I mean, sorry, 20th century, later on, not in the 1980s, I feel like we'd absolutely have a different conversation with it than we do, because I agree. I couldn't believe that I had never, A, had heard of the movie, and B, it looks like a tour de force in some of these acting jobs, and it really is one of those things where it's like, wow, how, how did... A, I didn't know about it, but like it's now I really want to see it, uh, and that's just an interesting point. His bit when he talked about how disappointed he was at the reaction to that film really kind of got me because you could see he put a lot into that, and he was just like, it was so hard, so much hard work went into that, and people just didn't care. And I was like, oof. It's interesting because well, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket came out at that time, you know, and those well, Platoon was a much bigger film. Um, I mean, was Full Metal Jacket pretty big when it came out, Ray? That that was like mid late '80s, right? So, so when Full Metal Jacket was released, and I want to say that was the summer of '87. That's actually the same year that The Untouchables yeah. was released. It was a huge deal because Stanley Kubrick hadn't released a film theatrically since The Shining. Ooh. So, and at the time, too, Vietnam movies were kind of a big deal. Platoon had won Best Picture in 1985. So. De Palma had been sitting on the rights to a story that he had in the New York Times or read it in the New York Times, I believe, or The Villager. He talks about it in the film, and I, I can't speak to it because I can't remember the exact article. But it, it had a Vietnam setting, and it was also dealt with what happens 
to the soldiers when they become compromised uh, under the physical and mental demands of being in a war. And these are these are literally, you know, 18 to 21 year olds that are doing a majority of the fighting. Uh, the tagline for casualties of war is uh, the first casualty of war is innocence. And and it, it shows that uh, tremendously well. And he's made a, a really wonderful picture. Uh, the problem, it's not a movie that you're going to take somebody out to on a date. I, I looked this up the other day. This movie was released in August of 89, and uh, it was released on the same week as Uncle Buck. So your options were to see John Candy get a bowling ball dropped on his head or watch a Vietnam film about gang rape. I mean, I know which one I'm going to see. That being said, <laughs> I did see Casualties of War at the show, it's a hard watch, man. It is it, it's sort of a pyrrhic victory. He's made a really wonderful film that nobody saw, which I suppose is better than making a bad film that a lot of people see have seen, which happens a lot. But I hadn't gone back to Casualties of War since I rewatched it to discuss it for this uh you know, this podcast and the documentary and it still plays and it's still harrowing and I think uh he talks in the in the documentary about how the reason the film got made because the subject matter was so intense was because Michael J. Fox, you know, the biggest star in the world, he was in Back to the Future at the time, you know, he, he starred in it. And he's good in the movie. He, he really is. He's, um, he gives us really strong performance, but he's acting against Sean Penn, who is just, his performance is on 11. He's yoked up, his eyes are bulging out of his head. And you almost fear for Michael J. Fox's life, which is, I think, the whole point of it. But it, it just doesn't really play. I, I, I don't see in any world how Michael J. Fox survives. You know, I, it's it's King Kong versus Stuart Little. It, it's an accomplished film, and there's a lot to admire, including the Ennio Morricone score is beautiful. It's just, it's you know, it's not my bag. Yep. So he's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's poignant. I mean, that doesn't deter me from wanting to see it, but I see what you mean. It's not something that you go out as a social gathering Especially It was to based see, on but... a true story, right? It, it was a New Yorker article. Yeah. Yeah. Was... And it clearly and... reflects De Palma's actual opinions on war. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about a war as hell. I mean, he says it in the documentary. He looked at the Vietnam War as America going and raping and pillaging the country itself. Mm -hmm. I mean... He goes on and says the same exact message in his Iraq War uh, movie later Redacted, on. So yeah. he's got a message to put. He's going to put it out there in all of its graphic glory, one way or another. You know, if I were to rank like the the Brian De Palma filmography, it would it'd be solidly somewhere in the middle. Um, it's just it's not a movie for everybody. But the fact is, it's not meant to be. And maybe sometimes when you create art, it doesn't always have to be entertaining. War is ugly, and he shows, he definitely shows that. So to that extent, I mean, he, he did make a very powerful and impactful film, and I understand why he's disappointed, why it wasn't more commercially successful, but I, he's, a, he's a very intelligent man. I can, I can imagine he probably thought, yeah, this, is a, this isn't a movie going to be for everybody. So, And it wasn't. Uh, going off of, uh, I, I was saving this for, for later, but Kelly already uh, kind of alluded to it of, um, you know, during this documentary, I mean, De Palma has such a vast 
collection of films that he's made and they range, you know, all over the place. You know, a lot of them had the same general feel, you know, unlike us or unlike Ray, we're not all De Palma experts here. So I haven't seen a lot of his films. So my question to you guys is out of, out of the ones that were shown and, and kind of illustrate what ones piqued your interest and which ones have been added to, you know, our ever growing list of films that we want to see. And I'll, uh, I'll go to you, Eric first. Um, I mean, yeah, casualties of war. Definitely. Uh, I never saw, uh, what was the sisters? I never saw that. That looked sisters. very interesting. Some of his other f- horror films here, the John Lithgow one, uh, where it very much heavily homaged uh, Psycho. Yeah, I, I'm interested mm-hmm. in that just because of the camera shots. And surprisingly, I've not seen Carlito's Way. So uh, that's definitely one I have at the top of my list now. Um, and Ray, so before I, we uh, invited Ray on this podcast, we worked together at the post office and he handed me Phantom of the Paradise, Blowout, and Body Double. All which I enjoyed fairly much. So, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I have been able to see some of his lesser-known films, and I, I'm definitely interested in exploring more. What about you, Kevin? So, Phantom of the Paradise is definitely a, a top of the list. I mean, that mm, <laughs> rock opera meets <laughs> slasher slash, I, I don't even know where to start. And the fact that he got sued by three different major places immediately after that got dropped makes me even more interested to say the very least um i think actually all three of the ones that ray handed you eric are are the three that i would would want to watch um especially blowout um i am severely disappointed that the documentary gave the ending to blowout away Uh, i was kind of like why would you do that to me you just put this great you know movie together and it makes me sad speaking of blowout um and i was doing a little bit of research on this whole thing uh somebody that uh went on to be heavily influenced by the work of mr depoma is one quentin tarantino and he goes on to say that blowout is single-handedly uh the best movie that diploma has put out and actually if you think about a lot of tarantino at least what i enjoy about tarantino is the visual side of things you can definitely see the heavy heavy influence that uh Brian Diploma has on Quentin Tarantino, and I thought that was pretty cool. So those ones are uh, on the list. Um, and then I want to go rewatch Scarface, um, The Untouchables especially, and just kind of, you know, go on from there. I love the fact in the documentary they use so much footage from the Diploma films. He'll talk about it, and they'll intersperse scenes from the movie. If you want to introduce an audience to Diploma, it's probably best not to ruin an ending to what I think is his best movie. And, and they do that. And and it's it, it's funny because uh, my daughter and I watched Blowout together, and she is 13 years old. And she, she didn't watch the, the, the documentary with me, and the ending of that movie blew her mind. And... I still get goosebumps when I when I think about it when the first time I saw it and it still works incredibly well. It's just it's just De Palma flexing all over the place with I mean, it's just brilliant on so many levels. Blowout's such a wonderful movie. And uh when Tarantino was casting pulp fiction, everybody in Hollywood wanted to be in pulp fiction. De Palma uh not De Palma, uh Tarantino was hot. He had you know, he had some script writing, he did true romance at the time, he um he was coming off of a, a tremendously successful Sundance showing of Reservoir Dogs. So he was hot. And uh, the role of Vincent Vega, he had wanted John Travolta to do. 
and he had known he didn't want John Travolta to do it, but John Travolta was not the actor that John Travolta was in the 70s. He had a little bit of success from the Look Who's Talking movies, but he sort of was a punchline, which is unfortunate because he, he really was, I mean, a superstar of the 70s. And he wanted to cast him as Vincent Vega, but he the studio wanted him to read or... So he decided he wanted to get together with John Travolta and play a game of Welcome Back Cotter board game with him and sit down and watch Blowout with him, which is one of Tarantino's movies. And they spent the afternoon and did that together. And then the next day, Travolta got the script and the role. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, uh, uh, you know, the ones that I've added to my list from from watching this documentary, Blowout, it's definitely one of them. Uh, I think just... You know, it sucked that they spoiled the whole ending, but like leading up to it, when he showed I, just the the concept behind the whole film with this, you know, this guy out there just like getting sounds and stuff, and then the accident, and then the that three sixty shot. I just like I really loved that three sixty shot, and then him kind of walking through and showing Travolta and how it just kept spinning and and you know doing that back in you know nineteen eighty nineteen eighty one just you know kind of blows my mind to be able to do that with you know nowadays when you know they can do everything with special effects and you know they got those volumetric lights and all that stuff now where you know doing that kind of shot isn't isn't as difficult but him being able to do it and and accomplish it was pretty pretty spectacular so blowouts on my list and then obviously scarface it's been on my list i'm sure i'll watch it one day i'm, I'm gonna do it you know it, you know one day <laughs> i'm the same as you cole because scarface of course is on my list but it's been low because as we have established i'm not into gangster movies but it sounds like De Palma kind of isn't so much either and i appreciated his pickiness and like Sticking to his guns of like, I want neon colors. I want this to be different. I want it to look different. Mm. And because of the way he spoke about it and because of the shots that were shown, that wasn't just say hello to my little friend. When I saw the neon, when I saw the white suits, I was like, okay, this, I knew that it was on my list, but it bumped it up several spots. So Scarface is, of course, on there for me as well. No, but when they put that out, and I just had this image of Spielberg walking through a set and like him asking a question, and Spielberg going, "Eh, why not?" <laughs> and like that's how some of like the greatest shots of these yeah. films come about. Yeah. Just like two boys, just like shooting the shit, and then coming up with this random ideas, and it just happened to work. Like, well, he what? He, he, did, he ran second unit direction. He he was second unit. He was for the 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 shootout scene at the end of the film. There, there's that, but I mean Spielberg and De Palma and and Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese. I mean they were all buddies. John Milius in the '70s, they all hung out together. And I, and it's my understanding that um, they all looked up to De Palma. De Palma had already been established. You know, he he had had Carrie under his belt, and he just carried himself with. An, inc an incredible gravitas. When De Palma saw the first cut of Star Wars, he just absolutely ripped it to shreds in front of Lucas, telling him it made no sense. And he made a bunch of suggestions. And one of, I believe, De Palma's suggestions was the crawl at the beginning of Star Wars to kind of explain to the audience what the hell everybody was watching. And fun fact, that's how yeah. he got the ending to E.T. E.T. takes out a machine gun and mows everyone down. <laughs> Spo spoiler oh, alert. I totally yeah. missed that. Yeah. 
Well, and, and like that whole shootout scene, I, I I loved the, you know, behind the baseball or inside baseball or whatever, some stupid baseball phrase that Kevin always likes to say. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like an extra shot from Scarface made it all the way here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. But uh, I, I loved the where he talks about how... Um, you know, he the he burned his hand on the gun and was actually in the hospital. And they had a week or two weeks, I can't remember, where they fill, had to fill without him. And they were just shooting the big, you know, the whole scene. They were just, yeah, you know, we got a bunch of time and Spielberg shows up. They're like, let's just, you know, put a bunch of cameras out and just have a bunch of guys run, run around and just shoot. And we'll blow up stuff for a week or two until he can come back and we can finally finish this film. And then, you know, they made something uh, you know apparently pretty amazing and, and kelly I'm, I'm right there with you when i was watching it and they were talking about scarface i you know i'd known about it but when they talked about like the neon and like the miami and trying to you know get get that vibe and how he talked about it, it definitely definitely pushed it up on my list of of films that i want to see and going back into some of like the documentary style stuff and getting into the weeds of you know de palma as a person they never really dove too deeply into it but uh, I, I i enjoyed how he kind of you know kind of dropped some some treats along the way about his his life and how he truly used some of his um own experiences into his filmography and, and putting himself into his films um ray as our expert here was there anything that you learned about De Palma and like you know his personal growth as a person with his family and some of his backstory and you know how, you know was there anything that you stood well, out to you or or anything of note? I'm not so much interested in De Palma's personal life as I am on his uh, views on the films that he made. I wish he would have talked some more on on the bigger films. I know they cover all of the films. Which is nice because had they not, I would have been like, oh, why didn't they talk about wise guys or Raising Cain? But uh, speaking of Raising Cain, he does mention just an aside about that story where in the film, Lolita Davidovich has an affair uh, on her husband who's portrayed by John Lithgow and she wakes up and and he mentions he got that idea from when he was having an affair with a married woman and he had wondered what would happen had she fallen asleep at his house and he kind of incorporated that little bit of personal minutia into raising Cain. And of course, he, he talks a lot about his uh, father's infidelity and he used that as a tremendous, uh, as, as a plot point almost for Dress to Kill. And, and before that, it, he touches on it quite frequently in um, the student film home movies. So he, they say, you know, write what you know about, and he does work that into his films. That's fair. Anyone have any other uh, input on the personal life of De Palma and his relation to, uh, to film and his growth before we uh, dive into our, our reviews or does anyone have any miscellaneous items they want to talk about that I haven't touched on? I don't like car chases. That's uh, that was one of my favorite quotes. Um, his <laughs> yeah. adversity to car chases. He just said, like, ever since the French Connection, uh, there couldn't ever be another car chase that is worth being on screen. Basically, that's paraphrasing him. Uh, that was a great quote. And I just uh, obviously, I didn't know that he was kind of part of this. It it was kind of a boys' club in the seventies of George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Paul Schrader. Martin Scorsese, 
And, okay, I, I'm going to say, you know, that picture, it ages kind of oddly. I, I mean, it was more just Hollywood in general at that time. It was very much run by men. Obviously, we've come to a much different time. You know, it's great that we are able, you know, we have way more female directors. But back then, yeah, it was just like a lot of men just directing a lot of manly films. And Kev? Tidbit. I think that was interesting. Um, while talking about uh, Sean Connery uh, and working with the Untouchables, he had this small bit about how he mentioned that Sean was just constantly trying to bury the idea of James Bond behind him. And I was, you know, not something that's overly reported or something that I kind of knew as a James Bond fan was he, he didn't like that role. He didn't like being associated with it and that he wanted to distance himself from it. And that the Untouchables is, you know, for he won an Oscar for that award. Like that's such a phenomenal achievement on its own, but it's, it, you need a great director in order for you need to get into performance out of someone like that in that role. And I think that, uh, even you look at Kevin Costner's performance in general in, in that one, uh, and just across the board, I didn't realize too, that mission possible. That was, you know, the start of Tom Cruise productions, right? So that's the very first movie that Tom Cruise is the, the head honcho or has credit on it. And, goes on to spawn a, a you know 10 movie franchise or whatever the hell it ends up being i think that's a lot to do with brian de palma right i mean if we don't have what we get from a visual standpoint from a cinemagraphic standpoint from how that movie is created it goes along the wayside as just another you know b-rated action film but it launches tom cruise as to who we kind of know who he is today and yeah he was a hollywood actor but i just think that we have to give diploma a whole lot of credit in that circumstance and i thought that was really cool um you can just see him i mean even robert de niro too i mean robert de niro turns out to be obviously this this massive a-list actor but i think that you put him in a great place to succeed and showcased him in a way that made him you know, really shine in a lot of those early films. So uh, great on him for all of that stuff. Um, real quick, because we don't talk about it too much, is the music side of things. He talks about it in a couple of different points, um, how how rare it is to find someone a great from a partnership in music. I love it. He just uh, talked about John Williams, like he's old Johnny Williams, like just the side guy he's getting beer with, like the most prolific composer in, in movie history. He's just old Johnny, just hanging out. I thought that was great. He talks about working with Marconi in, you know, with the Godfather, uh, or not with Godfather, well, with the Goodfellas, and that whole thing. Ah, untouchables. Why do I keep screwing all these um, gangster movies up in my head? Uh, that was pretty cool. Oh, also, before I forget, that the movie would have been called Wise Guys because that was the name that the the novel, The Untouchables, yeah. was based off of was Wise Guy. But he was already in that comedy, Wise Guys, two years earlier that had flopped or whatever. So he was already closely associated with a project called Wise Guys. So he wasn't going to call Untouchables Wise Guy. And it's a good thing he didn't because I don't think it would have turned out you know nearly as good as it was. So, all right, done with the th- trivia. But there we go. Uh, one of my favorite De Palma films is Phantom of the Paradise, and that's um, a musical that uh, Paul Williams wrote the music for, and he's a genius, and there's so much in that movie. It's it's Faust meets Phantom of the Opera, and the visual style and the music and William Finley and, and Garrett Graham and, and Jessica Harper. I mean, it's the one movie that I hope when people watch a documentary and they they go, I, I never heard of this. This is the one I, I would hope that they would kind of go seek out. I, I watched it about three years ago with my daughter when she was homesick from school and we watched it together and uh, she looked at me when it was over and she said, this is better than Greece. 
and you know what she she ain't wrong i mean it is <laughs> appreciate i will say something that i gathered and appreciated was kind of his philosophy as a director what i get from him as well is like he knows what he likes he knows what he doesn't he's gonna fight for what he wants and from his personal stories it seems that that's true too he's gonna walk from away from things that he doesn't want just like the small things that he'll touch on like lets you gather a lot more but with all that said too when he's talking about actually like being on set directing all these big personalities and he speaks about it's like this egos you have to know how to direct the egos and if they lose their temper or if you lose your temper everything's lost for that day pretty much so he has this sensibility but he knows how to be imposing and just hearing about that that's him as a like a personal person it comes across in the little clips of the films that i was shown and i think that that's really strong and shows what like a creative force that he's able to be and it seems even when he has some flops he just takes it on the chin and he continues to move on and that's why he has so many that are under Mm -hmm. his belt and because he stands by his guns there's all these movies that we've talked about that maybe didn't get the biggest impact to an audience at the time of release but i think are going to kind of stand the test of time because of the amount of like authenticity behind the director putting them out so i got he got a lot of credit from me based on the way that they clipped this whole documentary together. Yeah. I think one of my, uh, my favorite stories kind of going off of what you just mentioned, Kelly was how he, uh, he clearly, you know, he has his, his vision of what he wants. And as the director, he, he usually gets it and has control, but there's like certain aspects or certain parts. Mission impossible. He talked about how they wanted to end it with just the three of them in a cart and, he takes off the mask and they just talk and they end this massive, you know, action film that way. And he hated it and kept arguing against it. But then they kept pushing back and pushing back. And then he was like, okay, fine, fine. We'll do it. We'll finally do it or whatever. Then, you know, he kind of kept pushing it a little bit. And Tom Cruise ends up coming and he's like, I kind of liked the, the helicopter and the tunnel idea. And he, you know, almost uses some of the, the other people to, you know, push them or convince them to go his way. And then obviously it worked out because, you know, Mission Impossible is, is, a, is a very good film, but I think if they just ended it with them just kind of sitting around at the end of the train, probably wouldn't have had as good of an impact. But oh, he definitely, definitely has his ways. I guess we're getting, coming down to the wire here and we can go through and we'll give our official reviews of the De Palma documentary from 2015. Um, I will start with Mr. Eric Kiska. All right. Um, so I I wanted to go back to what uh, Ray was saying earlier, how this was kind of like a greatest hits movie with the director giving liner notes. And, you know, I kind of had to ponder that and think more on it. It even gave away the ending to Blowout, you know. And uh, so this was very much a film that was made for fans and not for I, I don't think it was as much made for people that haven't seen a lot of his films because it is literally giving away the ending in in the documentary uh, to one of his biggest films. So I had to ask myself, you know, what do I like about documentaries? What am I interested in? I kind of like documentaries that are investigative and are impartial and are kind of open to the mind's eye of the audience. And it kind of lets them come away with their own conclusions. And this much, uh, this film is a little bit more, uh, you know, guy telling you everything, you know, talking right at you. And you can kind of make out tidbits here and there 
where you can come away with your own conclusion, but largely it is a guy kind of talking at you with one interview. And if you love Brian De Palma, you know that you're going to love this film. And if uh, you don't, then you might be a little colder to it, I think. But either way, it also kind of lacks some of the cinematic techniques that I like in documentaries. I was talking earlier about uh, how I watched Ken Burns' Civil War, and he literally made up a documentary technique called the Burnsian effect where he pans across a picture instead of just showing it on on screen and that was the first time like documentaries ever really started doing that and I was wondering why why do we just get one camera shot of Brian De Palma the whole time so that's a lot of my that's my negatives right off the bat but at the same time after you know listening to everybody and really taking this film in uh, I still really enjoy what Brian De Palma has to say on film um, and on the films he created, he's a extremely unique perspective and a unique character and person. I, I got to look at this film, you know, this documentary as him as a character too, uh, because what even documentaries, you need strong characters. Anyway, uh, with all those words said, this film isn't exactly my bag when it comes to documentaries, but I still don't dislike it. So I'm going to give this a B minus 24. And, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of in the middle for me. Uh, I still enjoyed it, and I, I think I definitely suggest people to watch it. But at the same time, it wasn't exactly my bag as a documentary. Let's go to Kevin next. First and foremost, I found myself enjoying this documentary regardless. So it does get that level right off the bat that I did walk away from this two-hour film enjoying myself. And sometimes a documentary doesn't give you that, right? If it's just a bunch of information, it gives you all at once. If it's not necessarily the most entertaining information in the world or the most compelling, it can be flat. It can feel like at a lecture, or it can feel like you're reading something in text format that came out of an encyclopedia, for example. This movie didn't do that. This movie did a very good job of taking all of the non-negotiable facts about our director and then sprinkling in some lessons about being a director, whether it's handling talent or the amount of control that you feel like you need in your films, whether it be standing by your guns when it comes to a particular editing element or even the subject matter of your movies being political in nature. I think that the documentary in general did a very good job of allowing the viewer to get a view of our director, the person, as well as the body of work that we get to enjoy while watching the film. I'd only seen a couple of the major films from De Palma, but by the end of it, and we as alluded to earlier in this conversation, I now have more to look forward to, which is even more interesting that such a dynamic director has more of a body work that was under the surface for some of us to to not even know it was there. I think that it's fascinating to find out that he is responsible for some of the the great uh, IPs in the movie world, um, especially when it comes to the Untouchables and Mission Impossible. I mean, those guys, at least for me personally, are are high up on on the list, and it was very entertaining to to see all of that. From a negative side, I guess because you know that is part of of what we look at. Um, like Eric, I am in the middle of watching a Ken's Burn documentary. This one's on baseball, so I also have kind of the the idea is that you have the other side. <laughs> yeah, insider baseball. But the Ken's Burn documentary, the also like the Civil War one, is very long, very 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 detailed, and gives you all the different perspectives from all the different sides and this one doesn't do that but 
for a movie that is literally just the last name in massive block lettering, I think we should probably assume that this movie is going to be a little bit of a vanity project for the the individual involved. So um, I thought that Noah Baumbach in general did a great job of editing this, putting it together and making it entertaining for the full damn near two hours. And I will recommend it for anybody who is interested about film in general and who wants to learn more about some of their you know favorites that might have been directed by Mr. Brian De Palma. So for all those reasons, it's going to go get a B24 for me and uh, looking forward to checking out some of those on that so list. This was also created by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, who is the younger brother of Gwyneth Paltrow. Just uh, one last oh. note there. Yeah. Well, today <laughs> I learned. Yeah, let's throw it over to you, Kelly. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll keep it short, I believe. Um, I agree with two things that Ray said that I'm going to repeat for my own credit now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a movie that's definitely for a niche audience. Um, 100% I agree with that, and I'm not part of that audience. And I like the metaphor of its, its notes on a Greatest Hits album. And if you listened and are a fan of that album, it's for you. Uh, for me, it would be like listening to one song off of an album, thinking it was pretty good, and then reading all the notes before listening to any of the other songs. So I'm not in the audience for this movie. So all I can give for that in that lens is how do I think the documentary was put together? And I think that the artistic choice of them was to just kind of strip it down and be just that. Let your favorite director or one that you really respect just talk about his work. We'll remove all distraction and go watch. So for that, I'm trying to think like if this exact same framing happened and uh, Eggers was the director, I would be like, let's watch this on repeat over and over again. So with all that said, I'm like, I think what helps and hurts it equally is just the way that they put it together. It's for a certain audience or it's not. So it is just a solid, I was going to do abstain 24, but I'm not going to, I did still watch it. I need to put it on my list. It's just going to be right in the middle for me. It's a C 24. Okay. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go next and we're going to save our esteemed guests for last. I, uh, when I found out I had to host this, I immediately complained because it was a documentary and uh you know i'm uh i like documentaries about history so i like like you know eric and the ken burns and stuff like that i like those kind of uh history type documentaries i couldn't imagine watching one about baseball that sounds like you know, <laughs> nightmare fuel but he's canadian um, forgive him this... so many things i hate about you <laughs> watching watching this movie and uh like this did not feel like a documentary to me. To me, this felt like, like I alluded to earlier, it felt like I was at a lecture hall and I was in a lecture that I was I was very enthralled with. I, I, I really enjoyed just listening to him talk and just seeing how he made it through the process and his experiences and stuff. But when I think of a documentary, this doesn't really, I guess, check the boxes or make me feel like it's really is a documentary, kind of like Eric alluded to with, how it was very one-sided and it's just it's just him explaining his process um i still really enjoyed it but you know it, it also didn't scratch that that itch and it wasn't what i was expecting it to be but it was still good some things that i did not like was like spoiling of some of these films granted it is like a love letter to his fans and stuff so i understand that and you know 
I guess I can't be too upset about a, about them spoiling a film from almost what like 30 30 plus years ago. So, you know, can't can't be too mad about it. You know, overall, I enjoyed it. You know, my my one uh, biggest gripe is that they listed uh Femme Fatale as being released in uh 2002 or 2000 instead of 2002. So, obviously the guys who made the documentary really didn't care about him either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh overall obviously <laughs> overall uh i felt like it was uh it was a good movie i really liked watching it i honestly could see this as like just a, like almost like a i don't want to say like a youtube series but some kind of like uh just a, a series of hour-long chunks of just him kind of like doing his thing and just talking about his process and stuff really enjoyed that as a movie and as a documentary kind of fell flat for me so i'm i'm similar vein with kelly i gave it a c plus 24 a little bit better still enjoyed it just not quite there for me now we're, we're gonna go to our esteemed guest ray the documentary there's i wish it was longer i i could have i could have stand to have another half hour easily tacked on i i know it's been kind of I don't want to say lambasted, but I know you guys are somewhat critical on the fact that as a documentary, you didn't find it stimulating. Well, I think if you had a moving camera and you had little tricks used, I don't think you would be paying nearly to much attention, as much attention as you need to, as the words he's speaking. Uh, the exciting part to me is the clips uh, and and the commentary he, he lays upon the clips and the story. So if you're a fan of film and you're a fan of De Palma, I mean... A24 did a documentary on Michael Bay, and he sat there and was talking about his films and all the uh, religious iconoclastic images and Christ symbolism in the films. I mean, I'd be eating it up. To me, I, I love that stuff. So it's it's a bit inside baseball for some, but for me, it was terrific. Uh, I would say that B plus, A minus, 24 for sure. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's close enough. Fair, fair. Well, I, I, fair enough. Yeah, I, I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, clip in a round of applause. Well, you know, we're we're very very thankful and appreciative of you to join us, Ray. Um, your knowledge of De Palma is is quite impressive, and also just your general film knowledge was is very appreciated and very welcomed, and you added a lot of value and and uh, to our podcast today. So I just want to. Again, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I, I, I enjoyed this. I, I love talking films. Uh, I just wanted to throw this out here. I'm not a big social media person, but if you're interested in some of my thoughts on other films, you can follow me on Letterboxd. My name is rdiddy624, and we're recording this right now, and today is my son's 16th birthday, so I just want to give my son, Zach, a happy 16th birthday shout-out. Uh, if he listens to this, that would be incredible because uh, he wouldn't know Brian De Palma if he walked into our house, but that's okay because he's awesome and I love him. So happy birthday, Zach. Oh, we really do appreciate it. Everyone listening, we love you all. We really do appreciate everyone that, that supports us and subscribes. Um, if you do like this episode and if you do like us, please subscribe. Please give us a good rating on any podcast uh, any podcast place that you listen to besides apple i'm not really a big apple fan um and if you do like baseball <laughs> send all your stuff to kevin i really don't care Ugh. but uh overall i hope you all have a wonderful wonderful day i love you all have a good night bye can't just have a f1 uh documentary 
by Ken Burns yet. Oh, right. God, F1 is so amazing. I mean, I can't, I can't like bash F1, so I need to find something he likes that I don't. <laughs> I have so many things I hate about you.